an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come here the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. And my guest, well, one of my guests today is Carrie Teal, Executive Director of Gray 2K USA Worldwide, the largest greyhound protection organization in the world. Teal is also the co-author with Christine Dorchak, Gray 2K USA Worldwide's President and General Counsel of the just published book, Brooklyn Goes Home, The Rise and Fall of American Greyhound Racing and the Dog That Inspired Movement. Featuring a foreword by Jane Goodall, who has adopted greyhounds, Brooklyn Goes Home chronicles how greyhound racing became a flourishing business to the often horrific detriment of the dogs and the extended effort typically led by Dorchak and Teal to end the enterprise. There's a sweet dog, Brooklyn, occupying the center of this story. While the saga is replete with white hats, activists, legislators, many others, there's also a huge group of villains employing any and all techniques to block reformation. One of those black hats is worn by a man named Rory Goray, who for many years ran the largest industry-funded greyhound adoption group, Greyhound Pets of America. In a significant plot twist, though, after battling him for years, Goray has transformed into an ally. So, Rory Goray, alongside Carrie Teal, will join me on Talking Animals today to recount part of this narrative, including Goray's striking transformation. We'll explore those things in a moment here on Talking Animals on WMF. Before I tell you more about today's show, I want to quickly mention we just launched a redesigned website. As always, it's at talkinganimals.net. The terrific redesign was carried out by Kevin Hole and Brian Merrill of AR Machine in St. Petersburg. The new improved version retains the essential elements, about 20 years of archives and several years of podcasts, the searchable database of all shows, while looking much sharper, adding other features and more. So my thanks to them. Check it out when you have a chance at TalkingAnimals.net. Meanwhile, coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Representative Lindsey Cross, who, joined by two colleagues, has proposed a bill that allows for the discretionary appointment of a volunteer attorney, certified emeritus attorney, or certified legal intern to act as an advocate for the interests of justice in criminal cases cases of neglect or abuse involving a dog or cat. More details on this later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk with Kerry Teal and Rory Goray with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-239, sorry, 813-433-0885. Here's Kerry Teal and Rory Goray on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Thank you, Duncan. Happy to be on your show. Thanks for uh, joining us on Talking Animals. I appreciate it. And it uh, seems like we have lots of cool things to uh, to talk about, including, as I noted, you guys share kind of an unusual story. Enemies, I guess, with some an- antagonistic years eventually leading to a peace treaty and then, dare I say it, a friendship of some kind? Would that be uh, reasonable? Uh, th- th- there's no doubt about it. It's, um, you know, it's... It's such an odd story, Duncan. I mean, we, we start the book with a Mark Twain quote that, you know, truth is often stranger than fiction. And, you know, the, the entire story of how Greyhound Racing ended really does 
fit that quote. I mean, how 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 unbelievable is it that a group of ordinary dog lovers would fight a multi-billion dollar gambling industry and win? Um, how unlikely is it that a dog born in Australia would be sent to this Chinese dog track where, where 30 dogs a month were being killed, and yet somehow, after living eight years in a cement cell, um, be freed when the track is closed and come home to live with with Christine and I? Um, how unlikely is it that, you know, after years of of seeing this industry very differently and being political opponents, that, that Rory and I would become... Um, allies and friends, and I'm I'm very very proud of that friendship. So I, I think it's you know it's our friendship really does personify this this strange story of what happened. And and to me, um, you know it's it's a story of hope, and it, it's a story which proves that you know the power of everyday people uh, really can win the day, at least sometimes. Well, well, I I hope to explore most, maybe not quite all of those storylines, but most of them at least, uh, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff, like you say, kind of thing, very reflectful of just the overall story kind of embedded in some of those smaller storylines along the way. But let's head back a little bit to the earliest days for each of you when you first became fond of greyhounds. Rory, maybe you could tell me about the beginnings of your becoming a greyhound guy. What what did you first like about greyhounds? Well, my story really began... In San Diego, I was part of a, a group called Greyhound Pets of America, California, which became a Greyhound Adoption Center run by a, a, an awesome guy there named Darren Riggs. But in the San Diego Union, uh, every it seemed like every Sunday there was stories about the greyhounds at the Caliente track and um, that they were being fed to the tigers at the zoo there and just the, the lack of care. Now, I will say this. I had always, I was in the Navy, and I'd always said to myself, I was going to get a dog when I got out. It was going to be a real dog. It was not going to be a greyhound. And I happened to be at Balboa Park one day right before I got out of the Navy, and I saw GPA California there with the greyhounds, and I just fell in love. Can I I just interrupt for one quick sec? Because you made an aside there that I find fascinating. You're going to get a real dog, not a greyhound. Can you elaborate (laughs) a little bit more on what, at least what that back in the day, what that meant to you? For me, it meant uh, a journey. German Shepherd, because that's what I had kind of grown up with. So I wanted another German Shepherd. But okay. man, when you when you get introduced to these greyhounds and you just learn how wonderful they are as as pets, um, it, it's hard to go to anything else. <laughs> what are some of those traits for those listening and uh, even those hosting who haven't lived with greyhounds? Tell us what are the kind of the most uh, enchanting things about greyhounds that obviously won you over, where it's like you couldn't have been less interested suddenly in the in the uh, the German Shepherd that you thought you were going to probably veer towards. For me, it's just the way they interact with uh, my wife and I. They, if you bring them into the home to be a part of your family, they adapt to that and. They become one with the family, and they are, you know, they're 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 there for you as you are there for them. And, I, and I'm sure Carrie can even tell you even more, you know. For sure. Yeah, well, Carrie, let's ask you largely the same question. Tell me about the beginnings of your becoming a Greyhound guy and what it, what first drew you about Greyhounds. And, and did you have a, a start off with an attitude that, like, they aren't the real dogs because there's another dog that I like more at, at, at the time or just that I'm accustomed to? You know, I, I, I grew up with dogs. My mother was constantly finding rescue dogs and taking them into her home. And so we had, you know, five, six, seven dogs at the time, but no greyhounds. Um, but she just really cared about animals generally. And uh, when I was uh, a teenager, 
um, you know, she started to think about um, some of the broader uh, questions in our society about animals and you know, whether animals were were being treated appropriately or not. And you know, she shared a lot of those ideas with me. And so, you know, I, I did a little bit of work in the in the Oregon State Legislature when I was uh, a very young man. Um, really had no idea what I was doing. And then uh, when I was 22, there was a, a ballot question in the state of Massachusetts, w- which really was the first time that uh, grassroots advocates had tried to completely abolish greyhound racing. And I, I was asked to come out and work on that campaign. Um, and uh, it was it was a, a very, a very difficult fight. Uh, the industry spent millions of dollars against us. Um, I, I was sued along with three other people on the Friday for the election for ten million dollars for defamation of character. So it was a pretty it was a pretty rough campaign. And uh, on election day, we lost fifty one forty nine, which was it was one of the closest elections uh, in terms of the ballot question in state history. And you know we we were devastated because uh, I believe that my failure, my personal failure, was going to lead to you know, dogs continuing to suffer in this industry. But we also realized that we had stood up to this powerful industry and almost won. And so uh, I, I think that was the moment that this grassroots movement, which has really become a global, global movement now, um, you know, took shape. You know, Rory and I came to this issue in a very different way in that, you know, he came to this from the adoption community. I came to this essentially from, you know, the animal rights community, um, uh, but we, we both, you know, he's so right. I mean, they're just incredibly sweet, gentle dogs. And, you know, I hope we get a chance to talk about Brooklyn later, but I, I will just say, you know, uh, adopting him in particular, and he had a lot of health issues and he, he had a, he had a hard, hard go for sure, um, suffered a lot. Um, but taking care of him and, and really, you know, having a special needs greyhound that, that was completely dependent on me. Um, really changed me. I mean, it, it, it was, um, he, he and all greyhounds are just such sweet, gentle, loving dogs. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a gift to have them in your life. Well, you said a few things that I want to maybe follow up or, or ask you to elaborate on, including in that first um, election that was ended up being so close. And of course, uh, as part of the fund, you got sued. Were you asked to be involved in that because you're just sounded like kind of a precocious young, but obviously talented activist and political of some kind? Or was it also because you already, even at that point, had a strong feeling about dogs? Yeah, I had been working in the Oregon State Legislature um, trying to help fight for animals, and I defeated some subsidies for the greyhound racing industry. Um, so I was I was sort of on the map in that regard. But you know, Susan Netboy, who was a grassroots activist that preceded us, um, uh, knew of my work and asked me to come out and work on the Massachusetts campaign. Um, the 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 the, adv- the grassroots folks in Massachusetts were really incredible. I mean, they they had been. Um, you know, working very hard to try and um, do something about this problem and all the dogs that were that were being injured and, and suffering. But, you know, they, they didn't have any kind of they didn't understand this was a political issue and, you know, they didn't really know how to have an impact. Um, and so that first campaign was was sort of the first moment when um, it transitioned from, you know, a true grassroots movement to more of a political movement. 
Let me let folks know who might just be tuning in. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guests are Carrie Teal and Rory Ray. Teal is Executive Director of Gray 2K USA Worldwide, the largest greyhound protection organization in the world, and co-author with Christine Dorchak of Brooklyn Goes Home, The Rise and Fall of American Greyhound Racing and the Dog that Inspired a Movement. This new book chronicles the extended effort to end greyhound racing, including that Teal and Goray were fierce enemies to this, uh, on this issue, but are now allies. If you have a question for Carrie or, and or Rory, or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So another thing you said along the way, Carrie, that I think is important just to kind of highlight and then maybe follow up on with the Rory is that I think a lot of people who, you know, got involved with Amendment 13 or just were involved at any point in trying to end greyhound racing just because of what they understood to be the treatment of the dogs and what kind of life those dogs led need to also be reminded that even the people that were on the other side of that effort, as you've kind of noted there, were huge into greyhound adoption. So it wasn't just either or. There was a lot of gray in there, so to speak, of the people that might be fighting reformation were also totally intent on finding uh, nice homes for these dogs and loving the dogs just as much as the other people did. Yeah, I mean, I'll let Rory respond to that, but I I will just add before, I mean... one of the things I have learned from this process and, and something that Brooklyn taught me, quite frankly, was, you know, that that the greatest power is the, and, and the secret of all of this really is just to love, you know, to, to forgive, to try to find common ground, to, to try to have empathy. And I, I think, you know, our, our society is so split right now. It's so divided. Um Amendment 13, you know, in a lot of ways was a, certainly not, not with, with, with the industry, but, you know, in society at large, it was such a unifying moment. I mean, what other issue brought together, uh, you know, the most progressive members of the state legislature and the League of Women Voters um, and Andrew Gillum, you know, joining with uh, Laura Trump and Mike Huckabee and Rick Scott and Pam Bondi? I don't think there is another issue. And... Uh, you know, I, I feel very honored, certainly, to um, have uh, gotten to know Rory in recent years. He he was an incredible voice of courage when uh, live cases of live lure training, which is, you know, small animals essentially being ripped apart by greyhounds, when we started to document those a few years ago. Um, he, he's been a voice of conscience when it comes to the way that the greyhound adoption community has been so deeply politicized that it's really been destroyed um, I'm very proud personally of, of his work fighting for horses um, and, you know, having a friendship with him at the end of this long journey um, is, is de- definitely, you know, been a gift for me. So anyway, I said all that. I said where you should answer it. Then I said a lot. So I apologize. <laughs> no, no problem. In fact, what I'd like to do is back up a little bit and have uh to some extent, maybe both of you guys address this, just to get more of a sense of history. And again, Carrie, you've written, you've co-written this great book that's just out, just actually came out yesterday, by the way, and you can get it pretty much anywhere you get your books, it's available. And again, it's Brooklyn Goes Home is the uh, short title, and the long, the subtitle is The Rise and Fall of American Greyhound Racing and the Dog that Inspired a Movement. As part of that, maybe both of you guys could sort of give your own points of view on the earliest days, maybe like a, a little bit of a truncated account, but of why and how greyhound racing became so successful and why it was embraced the way it was. Well, I can, uh, you know, the early days of greyhound racing when it was successful, if you really look at the communities where 
they had Greyhound Racing. Like I live in Phoenix, Arizona. At the time when Phoenix Greyhound Park was so successful, you didn't have the lottery. You didn't have a new movie coming out almost every night. There wasn't many opportunities for people to spend their their income as, you know, to go have entertainment. Mm. Uh, The tracks were able to offer cheap meals. But as more entertainment came about, more the lottery, casinos for the tribes, Greyhound racing just was not, you know, entertainment value for these people. I will even speak for myself. While I would go to the tracks, uh, you know, mainly to talk to people about getting dogs, I was completely bored sitting there watching a 31-second race and then having 15 minutes of twiddling my thumbs. So even though it was aiming to entertain people who maybe didn't have many alternatives, sounds like it didn't do much of a job of, of entertaining you. No, and, and you know, in the old days, I think there at uh, the Derby Lane track, I think they used to have a band shell. So in between races, they would have a band going. So there was there was some entertainment going on. Yeah. When, when things got expensive and they had to cut costs, it just was not of, of value. And they they weren't running, you know, they, they kept running to the, the same races, the 550 and maybe one other over and over and over. There was there was nothing that the people who got involved in it or excited about it could continue being excited. In. And where was this, the early days you're describing now, relative to when you became a Greyhound fan and, and passion supporter and adopter of? I was in San Diego, California, and I when I got involved with Greyhound Racing or a Greyhound Adoption, I had never really been to a track, so I had, had no clue what it was okay, about. Okay, so you were already a Greyhound person through and through before you went to your first race. Correct. So that, that, that also may or may not have been another reason why you thought, okay, what's, what's all the fuss about? There's a few seconds here of excitement, and then I guess I go to the band show or whatever, but... For either one of you, I, I was, I'd be curious to know when it became apparent that racing was going to be problematic or worse for the dogs. Well, for me, um, and I've had a different journey than most people. I don't know if there's anyone else that's had the journey I've had with being in adoption, leaving the nation's largest adoption program, getting out of it, and then getting dragged back in as a racing commissioner uh, and a political appointee. And so I got to see things from when that happened. I got to start seeing things from a, a different angle. I can tell you, you know, like with Amendment 13, when there was the when Gray 2K would put out that the gray, the Greyhounds were kept in their kennels for 23 hours and the racing industry is meaning oh they're lying they're lying like folks there's an official state report on this you can't say they're lying you need to come out and say how you're going to beat that we're sorry this happened but we're going to be different and then the reports of how many dogs were dying on the track you you can't the public is just not going to accept that yeah well one of our emailers uh uh, sort of a, a two two part email in a way uh, says ask both uh, both I guess what kind of uh, neglect and abuses they found, and then as a follow up that sort of hooks into I think kind of what you were saying right there, Rory. Most dogs who experience a broken leg are put down right away. Immediately, I mean, it, you know, there, there were if if any, you know, to me, this industry. Um, and, and by the way, there's still two dog tracks left in one state, so it still doesn't exist in a very reduced form, um, although there's federal legislation um, that I think hopefully will end that very soon. Um, what state but, is that, by the way, Carrie? Sorry. Uh, West Virginia. Okay, uh, thanks. industry that really operates as if it's still, you know, 1930. I mean, it's like a Depression-era relic of an industry that happens to still, still exist today and for the most part hasn't changed. I mean, the, the, the one change, very significant change that happened is, um, is adoption. 
you know, if, if you go back to, you know, the late 70s or early 80s, essentially all of the Greyhounds were killed. Um, and, you know, due to the work of Rory and, and other adoption groups, again, you know, adoption groups that were pro-racing, anti-racing, neutral. I mean, it was a very diverse community. Um, you know, they, they adopted out, uh, you know, just tens of thousands of dogs um, and saved a lot of lives. But other than that change, I mean, the, the way the dogs you know, the housing, the dogs that are used for the dogs essentially is the way the industry was, you know, almost a century ago. Um, you know, the, the way that female dogs are given, you know, anabolic steroids, it's just, it's just, you know, if you look at, if you compare it to horse racing and, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be in the position to worry of defending horse racing here. Um, but, you know, horse racing has reformed a lot in, in recent years. Um, by contrast, the greyhound racing, industry really hasn't it, it was just always resistant to even the most basic changes um and you know in the end you know i mean obviously you know florida voters you know with a 69 percent vote um opted to, to put it in the history books yeah so let me ask you both again uh and this initially i guess directed at rory so uh what what did you find like what what puts you on opposite ends of the uh the the greyhound racing question should we continue or should we stop or we want to try to shut it down when you initially at least were squaring off with Carrie what 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 was the issues that you guys that on your side felt like look we're adopting out these dogs we don't agree with what they're saying about the conditions of the dogs i assume or what really were the issues that were fueling your effort to push back on those reformation efforts? It's kind of strange because thinking back on it, I think back, uh, I think first time I met you, Carrie and Christine was in New Hampshire. Um, if Maybe if we had gone out into the hallway and said, okay, Rory, what is your problem? And I think the biggest problem for us was the amount of money it was going to cost for us to move and house and get the do- dogs adopted. Okay. And I'm I'm sure if we had maybe discussed and come up with a, a plan, a solution, I'm pretty sure the board of directors um, would have said, okay, this this is workable, that we can live with this. Let's get the dogs adopted and get them taken care of. But when, you know, we were left out there, that while the industry gave us some money, we were pretty much left having to fund it completely ourselves. And so many volunteers put in their own money just to, to keep it moving. Um, but that I, I think that was just the main thing of the cost and the scare of how did we get these dogs adopted and when all of a sudden, you know, hundreds or thousands may become unavailable. So your side was basically saying this isn't practical. Uh, what, what they're what they're advocating for here just isn't practical to actually carry out. Yeah, I, th- I think it just scared us with all. You know, we may all of a sudden December thirty first have eight hundred whatever dogs, and I, from experience, and especially in the early days, I know that many of them would have just said, "Greyhound racing is over. I'm walking out of this kennel. Adoption, you've got it." And you know, we would be immediately in charge with taking care of all those dogs. And is there a downside that I think a lot of people think that racing is, at least in this country, think that racing is completely done? Does that affect, again, just generally the way people view racing and especially does it view maybe the possibility for further adoptions? Well, I think people after Florida, I think people thought 
there's no need for adoption anymore. And yeah. that that is true. We had we have the greyhounds in America, I think, pretty much handled for adoption. I won't say it's a hundred percent because I would never say it's a hundred percent because when you have puppies that die or dogs that die in training on the way to the track, that's not a hundred percent adoption. But a lot of people fail to hear that there's other greyhounds, there's galgos, um, there's still this movement is needed, and I think the pro racing people scared everyone into thinking you're never going to get another greyhound again because Florida is shut down. That's not true. There's there's thousands of greyhounds available every day for adoption in Ireland and Australia that uh, adoption is working on bringing them into the United States today. So are those former racing greyhounds as well from those countries? Yes, they are. And is it how, racing and coursing? And how complicated is it for international adoptions to take place uh, let's say I, I wanted a greyhound that, that was a racer in ireland what, what's involved in that compared to what would have been if i'd been adopting a, a florida greyhound let's say just some government paperwork to get them on the plane and then get them off the plane here in the united states and obviously it costs a lot more to ship that dog yeah uh, but and they are just as great as our our american ex-racers were um, they, I have a, an Australian greyhound that I just adopted a few months ago, a wonderful dog, uh, just like ours. So for any people who want to get back in the game, I would say, please give it a consider because these dogs need homes. Okay. This, I think we have a caller here that wants to get involved in the conversation. Let's, uh, invite them on. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Rory and Carrie. Hi, Duncan. It's Don Goldstein. How are you? Oh, hey, Don Goldstein. Wow. Another, uh, former gray, greyhound, uh, correspondent on Talking Animals and the guy who knows a little bit about the topic. Welcome. And, uh, obviously a good friend of Carrie Teal. Uh, yeah. And I just, I, I want to thank Rory for just bringing up the Galgos. That's what I was calling in to actually say before he said it. Um, the Galgos in, from Spain, um, it, it's, uh, they can probably describe it better than I can, but what's going on with the Galgos? And the uh, the Irish greyhounds that many associations rescue groups are bringing in, um, they're they're wonderful dogs. They are racing dogs. They're indistinguishable um, from from American dogs in in temperament and actually in size and stuff too. The Galgos tend to be a little funnier looking sometimes, but uh, but they're great dogs. They're wonderful dogs. And then I don't want people to give up on on Galgos, Irish greyhounds, and Australian greyhounds, although they're a little more difficult to bring into this country. And Don, how many uh, grounds currently are living with you? We're down to just one right now. Wow! We got, yeah, we got a boy named Rocky that was badly injured when he was two months old, and we had to repair him. Um, Carrie's met him, but uh, he's a he's a he's a pretty special boy. We lost our our girl in February. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And yeah, uh, but she, boy, you've she's had one of my grand dogs actually. <laughs> uh, and how many? I mean, how many dogs going back? How many years have you had? Greyhounds in your life? Going back 31 years, 1992 is when we rescued our first pup. Uh, we have adopted, Rocky is the 16th that we have adopted, and we have fostered over 60. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Cool. Well, any other questions for uh, Rory or Carrie? Uh, not particularly. Uh, you know, I, I unfortunately, I've never had the opportunity to meet Rory. Uh, we had a similar background. Unlike Carrie, who started with animal rights, I also started with, with Greyhound Rescue, and then... Uh, and of course, worked awful hard with with Carrie, even before Amendment 13. Yeah, uh, trying to get things changed in Tallahassee, and you know, we just 
we were never able to affect it, and that's why we worked so hard on Amendment 13, and unfortunately, we, we prevailed. So That's for sure. Uh, thank you to both of these guys. They're, they're phenomenal people, and we do appreciate it. And thank you, Don, who also phenomenal and worked really, really hard for many, many years. Thanks for uh, joining us on Talking Animals again. Bye-bye. So how would you guys characterize when your relationship went from antagonistic slash enemies slash rivals, whatever the best way to characterize it is, to uh, allies? What, was there a particular catalyst or was it just a gradual thing over time? Or how did something like that, a transformation like that take place? I, I think uh, gradual, but I, I believe when the, uh, the jacking issue happened, when the, they were doing live lore training. And again, you know, the industry said, we don't do this. They got caught red handed. Mm. They had. And as a commissioner, Carrie and Christine shared all the video with me regarding what they had captured on that. And I will tell you, I was sick. And I'm a, I'm a pretty hard dude. Not much you know, can upset my stomach or get me down. Yeah. I was sickened to my stomach, the stuff that I saw. And I think a little bit through that work, uh, maybe Christine and Carrie kind of realized that, okay, Rory is taking being a commissioner seriously and um, working on it. And just from our calls, we're getting to know, you know, they they love their, their pets just as much as my wife and I loved our cats and dogs here at home. Yeah. We were the same in that love for the animals. So it was really realizing, despite all that went when the dust kind of settled, there was quite a bit of mutual ground there and similar interests and passions. Yeah. Good, right? No, I was just going to say, yeah, in this world, we, we tend to focus too much on our differences than what we have in common. It, you know, it's it's the through line for me, Duncan, through all of this. I mean, you know, uh, Brooklyn, I just want to you know bring that up. I know we're ending, reaching the end of our time. Um, he was such the personification um, of that for me. You know, uh, you know, a dog who was born in Australia, uh, raced for a very short period of time, was not successful, was shipped off to the Canadrome, the worst dog track in the world, where 30 dogs uh, a month were being brought from Australia and 30 dogs a month were being killed. And, um, you know, we reached out to the, the track owner and said, let this be the first dog to not die. Let, let us adopt out this one dog just to, just to show that there can be some change. And when the track didn't respond, it became a worldwide campaign and you know, people put up posters all over the world and held vigils and, and that, that, you know, eight long years later when we shuttered the track and went in, um, he was still alive and he came home to us within a few weeks. He was diagnosed with bone cancer. Um, and yet he recovered and still was a happy, you know, just loving dog. And then he had an FCE, which is a form of spinal stroke and, and, you know, just wasn't very coordinated anymore. But even, even then after that, he was such a loving, sweet, open dog. I mean, we, we bring him to work every day and he would, uh, just stand in the the uh, front of our building and wait for people to come in and say hello. Yeah. And everyone that he met, he had this profound impact on. And, you know, Brooklyn taught me um, truly, you know, just, just to love, to love unconditionally. And I, I think, you know, this might, this might sound uh, like a cliche, but uh, I think all of us, even the most cynical politicians, have inside them a child that desperately wants to do something that's genuinely good, that wants to change the world. And I, I think this this whole story of fighting for these greyhounds proved to me that it can be done. And, you know, to, to, to forge a friendship with Rory and see his incredible work 
for, for horses and see his incredible work for Greyhound adoption continue, um, you know, tr- truly uh, was a gift for me at the end of this process in the same way that, you know, having Brooklyn was a gift. Um, so that's, you know, that that's why we wrote the book. It's why I hope that this story survives because, you know, in, in a world like Rory said, where there's so much division and so much, you know, focus, focusing on people, focusing on their differences, um, you know, to, to, to have a group of people come together um, to, to make the world a little bit better for these gentle dogs fighting a multi-billion dollar industry again and somehow winning. Um, to, to me, that's that's a story of hope um, for all of us. And it's it's so powerful. Uh, you see this periodically in all, across all kinds of animals and animal welfare stories, et cetera, how a certain animal can just stand out and just personify a certain struggle or just become symbolic or become some sort of ambassador. And it sounds like Brooklyn may have achieved all those things. No, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. It's, um, you know, he, he was just a, a, a spot, a dog with brown spots that, that certainly changed me. And I, and I think had a profound impact on the world, but you know, they're, they're all special. I mean, you know, if, if we had more time, you know, Rory could tell you about, about dogs that had a profound impact on him in the same way. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's, um, they're all they're all very special in their own way for sure well we unfortunately we have kind of just about reached the end of our time but just quickly uh tell me i'm sure there's dogs living with both of you rory you already mentioned one so uh is, is there just one currently living with you no right now i have five uh, okay there we Jay. go all right i our thought, I thought it Jay. had to be more than one yeah I, I had 13 at one time, but oh my I'm, I'm down to five. Wow. Okay. And Carrie, what's what's your uh, dog situation at home? No, we had a second greyhound that lived with Brooklyn named Gina, and she was, again, just a, such a sweet dog, and they were best friends. And we just lost her a few months ago also to cancer. Um, so uh, we're dogless at the moment. But we, we do have four four cats, all black cats, and uh, we're certainly going to have – more dogs in our life that's going to come. But uh, we, we have a rescue greyhound named Derek who comes to our office every day uh, who is adopted by uh, our director of research, Patrick Baga. And uh, Derek is my my uh, my dog time right now. Okay. So, well, that's great. And black cats are great too because anybody knows about black cats, they are, they are a tough sell to adopt. So that's great that you guys have four of them. So I want to thank you both. We went through the Carrie Teal and Rory Goray. Uh, the new book by, uh, by, by Carrie and, and Christina's Brooklyn Goes Home, The Rise and Fall of American Greyhound Racing and the Dog That Inspired a Movement. You can get that wherever you get your books. It's just out as of yesterday, so it's fresh off the shelves. And um, thank you guys both for making the time to join me today on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Doug. Thank you. In a moment, I'll talk with Representative Lindsey Cross about the bill she and two colleagues recently filed allowing the appointment of an attorney or legal intern to act as an advocate in criminal cases of neglect or abuse involving a cat or dog. We'll hear that conversation in just a moment here on Talking Animals. But first, let's step into the comedy corner with Tom Shalhoub and a piece fitting the called Animal Shows. This arguably is an animal show right here. Anyway, it's Tom Shalhoub with Animal Shows in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I like my animal shows, right? You like the animal shows? Yeah. Guys like animal shows, right? 
come on, we work all day, we wanna go home, we wanna watch animals eat other animals. It relaxes us, I don't know why. I've noticed something, I watch these shows all the time though. Don't they always try to make you feel guilty just for being human? They give you that human guilt trip at the end of the show, no matter what species of animal it is, they always come in with a deep voice at the end of the show when the sun is setting, the guy's like, the snow leopard has but one natural enemy. Man. Like I'm killing the snow leopard. I don't even know what it is. I saw this the other night, I got home on TV. This is what's on TV. The condor. The condor is flying in slow motion over the Grand Canyon. And the guy with the deep voice is like, the condor used to have the Grand Canyon to himself until the white man came. I'm like, oh, you gotta make it racial, huh? Like the condor cares about that. Like there's some black guy hiking in the Grand Canyon. The condor's like, you're okay, dude. It's the white man I got a problem with. That is Tom Shalhoub in today's Comedy Corner of the piece called Animal Shows, taken from his album Overconfident. Now it's time to speak with Representative Cross about the bill she and two colleagues recently proposed, allowing appointment of courtroom animal advocates. This is Representative Lindsey Cross on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Representative Cross. Uh-oh, I think we lost her. I'm going to try her again one more time. Sorry. This is Talking Animals on WNF. All right, we've got Representative Cross with us now. Good morning, Representative Cross. Good morning, how are you? I'm great, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. And um, describe, if you would, what your bill would do exactly. Yeah, so the courtroom animal advocate bill would allow for judges to voluntarily appoint um, an advocate to make fact-finding recommendations in the interest of justice. Uh, this these would be cases involving animal abuse or neglect involving a domestic cat or dog. And the advocates would, um, would work on a pro bono basis and would be required to be their attorneys, emeritus attorneys, or certified law interns that have knowledge of animal legal issues and are interested in helping to support our court system. And maybe you could say how it works currently for neglect and abuse cases and so essentially kind of what's lacking that your bill would serve to supplement. Sure, sure. So right now these, these animal abuse cases and neglect can be quite complicated. If you think of a scenario where someone may be hoarding animals and maybe there's 50 or more animals on the property, um, there's a lot of information that a prosecutor is going to need to collect, um, getting medical records, veterinary records for each and every one of those animals. Um, sometimes we see that these cases do not um, get the thorough review maybe that they deserve because it's so time intensive and it's so much work on the case of the, the prosecutors. So this is really helping to alleviate some of that workload for the prosecutors and provide judges that, that may or may not have as much experience with um, animal legal cases with some, some sound information and some recommendations on appropriate um, rehabilitative measures, um, and support their sentencing recommendations. So with that in mind, what kind of resistance, if any, to this bill do you and your colleagues anticipate? 
So we were able to get the bill passed through a committee uh, last year. We've made um, some slight modifications to the bill this year. And over the past um, you know, interim period over the summer, we've wor- worked closely with some people um, in the with some prosecutors. I've actually brought on a, a co-prime sponsor, Representative Bernie Jacques, who is a former prosecutor and has actually prosecuted some animal abuse cases. So we wanted to make sure that we were talking to prosecutors, we were talking with judges, we were talking with people involved in the animal law section of the Florida Bar to ensure that this is going to be um, additional support for our court systems and protecting animals and not something that's going to step on the toes or imply that our prosecutors and our judges are not doing a great job, but just additional tools um, that they can have that are free uh, and are available at their disposal. Right. I think I read somewhere where this, I believe, kind of intends at least to be a parallel to the laws permitting the appointment of guardians ad litem to protect the interests of children and other victims. But I guess part of what your bill aims to do is uh, provide that kind of same protection for animals who are even more hard-pressed to advocate for themselves, obviously. Exactly, yeah. So it would sim- it, it would function similarly to the guardian ad litem program Um we have developed this looking at the interest of justice rather than just the, the interest of that individual animal because we don't want there to be um, any assumption that we're trying to put the rights of an animal over that of a person. Um, but we believe that looking at the interest of justice is is going to protect um, the future health of animals. Uh, We also know that there can be a strong correlation between people who abuse animals and people who abuse humans, maybe partners or children. And so if there are appropriate recommendations in terms of rehabilitation or um, for people to no longer be able to, to own pets, for example, if there's egregious cases, we think that we can protect um, you know, future and prevent future victims. Well, that sounds really great. And it sounds like uh, the animal's interests are totally going to be covered and more thoroughly covered. And especially this, if I understand this correctly, this is expressly for abuse and neglect cases. Yes, it is. It is. And it's it's limited to, to criminal cases. Um, so it's going to be applied in some of the most egregious cases. And again, this is an option that judges will have. Um, If they have all of the tools and and knowledge they need, they don't need to um, to go down this route. But we think it's going to be something that helps to support our court system and provide, um, you know, really favorable outcomes going forward. Well, that's great. So what happens next? And is there anything we and and people listening to the show can do to demonstrate support for the bill? Yeah, we would love for you to, um, for folks to contact their local representatives and senators. Um, The House bill number is 297 and the Senate bill is 272. Okay, great. House Bill 297, Senate Bill 272. So if people want to say, hey, we love this, this is going to really help our animals and make sure they're further protected, that's the way to send the message to your representatives. Exactly. Yeah, Floridians, we love our our animals. We love our furry friends. And so this is just, I think, a common sense, a really proactive measure to help um, support our love of animals here. That's great. Well, Representative Cross, thank you so much for joining us on Talk Animals and explaining the bill. And thank you so much for sponsoring or, I guess, co-sponsoring this bill to uh, get things moving in that direction and, and keep it going this time all the way through, hopefully. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. 
Coming up on WNF, it's Slice of Life, the wonderful new show hosted by Randy Zimmerman. And after that, we shift back to music programming with Jim Bannon holding fourth from one to three, followed by, and I'm sorry to say, I just uh, heard this a couple days ago, the final show by Robin and Cassie from three to six. So we wish them well and thank them for all their great shows and just being fabulous uh, programmers here at WMF and we'll hopefully catch up with them somewhere else down the road. So, and then after uh, their show ends at six, our terrific Wednesday night block of Latin music kicks in. So, meanwhile, on this show at the moment, as the prize for name, I'm Animal Tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talk Animals Vault. The first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song, which we would have played last week in advance of the Stones trivia, but we ran desperately short of time. But congratulations to everybody on a hugely successful show at Skipper's Saturday with a nice tribute to the Stones and some girls. So it's name that animal tune, 813-239-9663, if you can name this animal tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. nearing the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Next Wednesday, November 15th, I'll be joined by Dr. Justin Peralt, Vice President of Research at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, a nonprofit sea turtle research, rehabilitation, education, and conservation center located in Juneau, Florida. The focus of my conversation with Dr. Peralt will be discussing the turtles laying a record number of nests this year along the beaches in Juneau, Jupiter, and Tequesta, and beyond. But as you might know and have probably heard and read, there's a phenomenon experienced in other parts of Florida as well. So we'll explore that with Dr. Peral, and I look forward to talking about other aspects of sea turtles next Wednesday, November 15th, here on Talking Animals on WMF. Also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net. We have a brand new website, TalkingAnimals.net. Well, not brand new, but totally uh, revamped and redesigned, looking sharp, if you ask me. TalkingAnimals.net. And there's also audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available there, too, as well as other podcast platforms. Also, links to our social media pages, etc. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the talking animals world. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind animals. Be kind others. I think we might have time for one more quick animal song, actually. And Ross is available to work in an extra one. So let's see if we can do that. How about what up, dog? Speaking of all the uh, the dogs we've done on this show, and cats a little bit too. Suppose not was, I'm talking animals on WNF. Sensors in a president's 
That's Was Not Was with What Up Dog here at the tail end of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Again, a reminder, we're coming up shortly on Slice of Life, the great new show hosted by Randy Zimmerman and others. And again, shifting back to music with Jim Bannon from 1 to 3. And then again, what I believe is the Robin and Cassie Swan song, sadly, from 3 to 6. And then again, our Latin music kicks in Wednesday night after that at 6 o'clock. So this is Talking Animals on WMNF. Hope you'll join us for uh, next week's show about sea turtles and why so many nests this year and what's going on. I think this should be pretty fascinating if you care about sea turtles at all and the just the explosion of nests on the uh, beaches in the uh, season, which just concluded. This is Talking Animals on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wiki, Wachee, and beyond. Stay tuned in for our news headlines, and then Slice of Life coming up after that. Catch you next Monday here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Thanks.